you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page number 10. As you're going there, we'll do a word of the day. Maybe some of you like uh, words. This is not a new word to, to many of you, but the word is magnanimous. Magnanimous. Uh, magnanimous is, is two words put together. The first word is magnus, which means great. The second word is animus, which means spirit. So put together, we get the word magnanimous. Uh, Webster's Dictionary says that this means, uh, magnanimous means a courageous spirit, nobility of feeling, and generosity of mind. As we think about Abram, both last week in chapter 13 and this week in chapter 14, we will see just this. We have seen his generosity, and today we'll see not only his generosity, but his courage as well. Last week in chapter 13, after Lot and Abram had separated due to the conflict between their herds, there was a time of peace. You find that the conflict, in fact, had ceased. Sometimes it is true that the answer to conflict can be separation. I say that sometimes because this is not always the right answer in all cases. There are times when separation is avoidance. It's not dealing with the issues. It's refusal to repent. That's not actual resolution. So in some senses, in some cases, conflict can be answered by separation, and this is one for Abram and Lot. It worked. It was appropriate. It was even delayed, we might say, because in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord told Abram to separate himself from his family, which he did not do entirely because Lot came with him. Nevertheless, in this parting, we noted Abram's faith in chapter 13 by letting God choose for him. When Abram and Lot were splitting up, Lot graciously and generously, excuse me, Abram generously said to Lot, you pick first. Lot chose what he chose and God gave to Abram what he had for him, which was really everything. Lot took what his eyes could see, while Abram let God choose for him. Abram demonstrated generosity, which we'll see again in our passage today, which is chapter 14. Chapter 14 begins by describing a war. So after detailing the beginnings of the patriarchal period, beginning with Abram, which then we'll get Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth, Moses tells an ancient story, really the inaugural story of international war. And we see it here in chapter 14. Look at it in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elisar, Chedalomar, king of Elam, and Tadel, king of Goim, 
These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zabim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So here's what we have. We have a coalition of kings. We have four in the east, the first four mentioned. And by the east, we are referring to modern day Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. That's the region where these four were. They were led by a king, the king of Elam, to whom the other kings, including the five from the south, paid tribute to this king. Well, the five kings allied themselves together and decided they would rebel against the king of Elam. And their rebellion took took form as they stopped paying their tribute. We're not giving you any more money. And so the four kings from the east, verse 2 tells us, made war against the five kings of the south, culminating in a battle at the valley of Sidim, or the Salt Sea, or what we know as the Dead Sea. Now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, as I'm thinking to myself reading these names, what in the world does this have to do with anything? I thought we were talking about Abram. I thought we were talking about God's promises to Abram. I thought we were talking about Abram's family. I thought we were talking about the promised land. Why are we talking about international war with a bunch of people that we never hear from again in the Bible, most of which cities that we don't even really know very much about? What is the point of all of this? Who exactly are these people anyway? Well, who they are is actually not the point this morning. That's not the point of the text. The point is that there were four kings who were conquering the land. The land that was promised to Abram and to his descendants. So this becomes a problem for Abram. They're in the land, they're going to be in the land as we'll see, and they're conquering the land. Abram's involvement becomes more personal in the next section as we see the retaliation of the four kings from the east. Look at verse five. In the fourth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came to defeat Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuim in Ham, Elam of Shavar, Kirathiam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Elparin on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to an Ashpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Now you'll be thankful that 
we don't have these kind of names in our, in, in our, our cities uh, anymore, for which I am thankful as well. What we're seeing here is the conflict, and I'm not sure if you can see this because this map is not very big, but I'll give you a, a, um, a red line here. So what's happening is the kings are coming from the east, the northeast, and they are coming all the way down here and all the way up here. That's all that was just described. They are just taking everyone all the way down from the, from the north to the south. They come down to, to the southern part here. They come back here, and then the Amorites here, and then here is at the, the south part of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, uh, Sedim, the Valley of Sedim is where we're going to see the next conflict. What Moses is doing, and they say, well, who cares? Like, who cares about geography? <laughs> who cares about how they came down, where, where they went? Right, you probably don't care. The, the point is, is this. Moses is showing to us the power of these four kings that they are just decimating everyone, one after another, tribe after tribe. And this would be what's called the Transjordan border. That's the Jordan River that runs down. Now it separates Jordan and Israel. But between that, the tribes on either side, they're just decimating these tribes. He's showing to us and telling us the power of these four kings. They're having their way. Additionally, as they decimate everything, that means that when they return to go home, there won't be any armies to fight them, right? They're killing off all their armies. There's not going to be anyone to stop them as they plunder everything and then go back home. Well, the final invasion came as they met the five rebellious kings from the south near the Dead Sea, right? And the conflict of interest uh, of biblical interest, uh, the conflict of interest to the, the storyline that we've been walking through comes here in verses 8 through 11. So what we have is five kings going up against four kings. That's what verses 8 and 9 tell us. I'm not going to read all those names again. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that the, the, the five kings come against the four kings. So we have a five on four situation here. Now, you would imagine that the five should have the, the, the upper hand, right? That the five should, should be able to fend off these four, especially as the four have already done all this battling. Secondly, the, the five are on their, their home turf. This is, they, they have home field advantage, right? And so you might think, well, th- this might be a battle. This might be, they might be able to put up a fight. Look at verses 10 and 11, we see the results. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. So actually, no, not much of a fight. They came in and everybody ran away. It was, no, it was not a fair fight. It was not an equal fight. Clearly, the five kings did not put up much of a fight. The powerful four kings rolled over them. They, they came in and, and they fled, right? And it says some fell into the, these pits, the, this bitumen pits or, or a, a, a tar pit or an asphalt pit. Would, would have been this, this pit of black ooze, right? Right? Um, and others fled to the hill country, it says. 
And John Calvin writes about this, and he says, I, however, understand them. You might say, why do they go into the pit? Like, don't they know that that's not a good place to hide? Like, that, you're, you're probably going to die if you go in there? Like, why would they go there? So John Calvin says this way, I, however, understand them to have exchanged one kind of death for another, as is common in, in, in the moment of desperation. He says, it's as if Moses had said, the swords of the enemy were so formidable to them that without, without hesitation, they threw themselves headlong into the pit. So we might wonder, what, why would you like not escape like everyone else? But the point was that the coming invasion was so bad, so strong, death seemed so, in, it's so likely that they decided they would take death in the pit instead of by the enemy. The invasions were merciless. They were destructive. They destroyed these places that they went. They took all of their possessions, as we see, all of the provisions. And here, after this last invasion, they go on their way. But chapter 14, verse 12, tells us that that's not all they took. It wasn't just provisions and possessions. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now we get to it, right? We got to wait till till verse 12. We got to get through pronouncing all these names to get to it. What is this story about? The story is still about Lot. The story is still about Abraham's family. And here we go. Not only did these enemies take other lands and cities and places, but now they are messing with Abraham's family. And one thing we're going to learn is that you don't mess with Abraham's family. Not only because of what Abraham does next, but because the the covenants that God gave to Abram, listen to it in chapter 12, verse 3. You can look at it, just flip, flip a couple pages back. Chapter 12, verse 3. The Lord says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lot is part of Abraham's family. Someone's doing something to Abraham's family. This isn't going to go well for them, as we will see. But before we get to Abram's response, we should note where Lot is in verse 12. Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom. Now we'll remember in chapter 13, Lot looked towards Sodom. Then he pitched his tent near Sodom. Now here in chapter 14, he is living in Sodom. We were already told, chapter 13, verse 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked. This isn't like he didn't know what was going on in the city of Sodom. It wasn't an accident. He knew. Warren Wearsby writes this, Lot thought that Sodom was a place of peace and protection. However, it turned out to be a place of warfare and danger. He writes, saints rarely are captured by the world suddenly. They, in, they enter into uh, the place of danger by degrees. With Lot, the process began when he adopted 
Egypt as his standard. You'll remember that he went with Abram to Egypt. And when they came back out of Egypt and Lot was given the choice of where he should go, he looked out and he saw things that looked like Egypt. And that's why he chose what he chose. Warren Wearsby continues, he adopted Egypt as his standard and began to walk by faith, in, walk by sight instead of by faith. He preferred the people of the world to his godly uncle. He preferred the houses of Sodom to the tents of God. The result was he was captured, end quote. The story of Lot, and it doesn't end here in chapter 14, is a cautionary tale. We must be aware of the lure of the world and of worldliness in our lives. And we ought not to think that we are above it. Well, that's Lot, we might say. Well, in the New Testament, we are told that Lot was called a righteous person. He was righteous before God, and yet here, clearly, he is living in the flesh. He is conformed to the world. The the enemy of the world was against him and was winning. And here's what you can know. The enemy of the world is against you too. That's why the Apostle John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, it would be helpful right now if we define what we mean by world. We don't mean the cosmos. We, we don't mean the globe. We don't mean the earth. We don't mean ground. We don't mean humanity, the world of of, of people or the the human race. What we mean is the world's system which opposes God. It opposes God with its values, its pleasures, its aspirations, principles, and practices. The world, we could say, is the organized, invisible, evil system opposed to God and Christ, which is under the authority of Satan, who is the God of this world, the God of this system. So we say that the world is our enemy. We don't mean the earth. We mean the system that it's Satan and his principles and his values and his pleasures. This system that is inundating your, your mind and your eyes and your heart. The world is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Why? Because the world centers itself or tells you that you are the center. While the kingdom of God tells us that that God is the center. The world tells you that you can have it your way. You can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. You have authority, self-autonomy. That's the world. And the kingdom of God tells us there's a ruler who reigns over all things, who created you, and who therefore has say over you. And that's not a power move by God. It's that he is a loving God, a loving ruler who has the best for you. 
The world that tells you you can be whatever you want is a lie. You cannot be whatever you want. Sorry to to crush your dreams this morning. You cannot be whatever you want. That is not the invitation of God in the Bible. It's not the invitation of the gospel. It is not to be whoever you want to be. It's to be who God made you to be. It's to be made new in the image of God again. It's to be renewed. It's to be given a new heart in a new mind. It's to love God and to follow him. That's what you are to be. And you can only be because of what God has done. You ought to take note, we ought to take note how the world, how worldliness is subtly, subtly, do you know there's a B in subtly, by the way? Can you hear that? I can't hear it either. Subtly and not so subtly getting into you. Have you ever noticed? Consider what you watch. Consider what you think about. Consider what your heart desires. Consider what are your ambitions. Consider when, when, when there's nothing else to think about, what do you think about? What do you long for? What are your values? What fires you up? What outrages you? All of these things tell us something about ourselves. And then we can ask, are these the ways of the world? Are these the way of Jesus and his kingdom? David Allen asked this question, do you pursue the things of the world with greater zeal than serving God? And if you do, you are in danger of loving the world. The word detox is kind of a trendy word these days, or detoxify. And it's trendy in many ways, but it means to cleanse. It means to purify or to decontaminate. It means to remove the toxins. We often think about that as a a body, uh, getting toxins out out of our body. But how can we detox from the world? We, we live in this world, don't we? It's all around us. It's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. We live in this world. But how can we detach from it? How can we ta- detach from worldliness and materialism that's, it, that's so insidious? It's so there. It, it's so creeping into our life. And what would it mean? What would it mean to detach from worldliness, not from the world of people in society? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about worldliness. We do live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Lot, again, is is, is our, our test subject. He was led by his eyes. We used this quote last week from Warren Wiersbe. The eyes see what the heart loves. It's a great quote. If you write quotes down, you should write that quote down. And then ask yourself, what does my heart want? The eye sees what the heart loves. So what does my heart love? Lot saw the well-watered areas that were like Egypt. 
That's what he wanted. Why? Because it was like Egypt. He didn't want what God wanted. He wanted what his heart loves. We have to get to the heart. We have to guard our heart. We have to guard our eyes. We are to love not this world or the things of the world. Rather, we must set our mind on things above. Set our mind on God. Listen, you need, we need no help in following the ways of the world. None. We don't need any tips this morning, any encouragement to follow the ways of the world. We, we all can do that just fine. You know why? Because it is the broad road. And Jesus says, many find it. You don't need directions to the road. You don't need help figuring out what, what, what can I do? What should I be doing? No, no, no. You don't need any help. The heart will go there. Without Christ, the heart will go there. But what we do need is intentionality to walk in the way of Jesus. And that's what the Bible does. In part, the Bible helps us to walk with Jesus, to walk the narrow path. For centuries, there have been spiritual practices that that people have, have ordered their lives around in order that their hearts would be focused on God. It's not ritual for the sake of ritual. It's not legalism. It's not rules meant to, to, um, to, to be heavy. But they're, they're practices and disciplines meant to help us walk with Jesus. Practices like silence. Or that being still before the Lord. Some of us don't like to be still. Some of us don't like to be silent. And one of the reasons is, is that when we're still and when we're silent, we have to deal with ourselves. If I can distract my mind, if I can entertain myself, if I can get enough noise around me, I don't have to deal with what's really going on in me. Pascal said, it's the most difficult thing for man to do is to sit in a room quietly by himself. Silence, be still and know that I am God. Daily prayer, that seems obvious enough to have daily prayer. We we don't mean a list of of requests that we bring to to God to, to get what we want. We mean communion with God. Daily. Daily communing with God, who the scriptures tell us is father, which makes you and me either a son or a daughter. Do you think of God as Father? Or do you think of as a deity in the sky that gets you out of a jam, who sends down gifts in kindness? Or do you think of him as a good Father who loves you, who welcomes you, who forgives you, who receives you? Daily prayer. Bible reading with meditation. Some of us do Bible reading plans. If you're like me, I like to cross things off. I enjoy that. To-do lists, cross them off. I'll add things onto a to-do list just so I can cross them back off. I like to cross things off. It feels like I completed something, right? But we can get into a habit of Bible reading so that we can check it off. I read it today. I did it. That's not the point. 
Yes, the point is to get the Bible into us, but if all we're doing is reading so we can check it off, we're missing the points. In Bible reading, God speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to God. In this way, it is conversational. This is how we have a relationship with God. Authentic community. Authentic community. Having people around you who know you, who you know, who love you and and want the best for you. And finally, humility. Honesty. Who you really are. Be who you really are. That's not some invitation to live however you want. It means that before the Lord, God knows you. God knows your heart. There's no need to pretend. Sometimes we like to pretend. We like to pretend that things are all good. We, 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 we wear our nice clothes on Sunday. We iron our shirt or, or, or whatever. And we act like everything's okay. When we all know that it's not okay. There's things in your life that are not okay. There's things in my life that are not okay. Being real doesn't mean I, I live however I want. It means that I'm honest about the struggles in my life. And honesty leads to an opportunity to deal with it. You're never going to fix a problem that you're not willing to admit. Unless you're honest, you're not going to admit the problem. So a spiritual discipline is to be honest, to show humility, to recognize our need, and to go to God for help. These are the the structures that people for centuries have practiced. They are practices and disciplines like these that, that we are to add to our life, to adopt into our life, to keep our hearts close to God, to strengthen our lives and our faith against the unrelenting forces of the world. The world is inundating the church. And by the church, I don't mean just congregations, I mean Christians. We can see it. You can see it in America. And we must stand against the world. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, all of that might not have sounded very hopeful. It's a bleak picture. The world's against you. There are practices to help you, yes. But let me tell you this. There's even better news than there are practices to help you. There's one who has overcome the world. Jesus says, in this life you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is victorious over the world. You say, well, that's great. Good for Jesus. <laughs> that's awesome. What does that have to do with me again? What has this to do with you? Because in 1 John chapter 5, John, the same writer of the Gospel of John, says in the epistle to 1 John, He says, how do we take part in that overcoming? How do we do it? Listen to it in verses four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. How? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So what do we find? That Christ has overcome the world and those who are in Christ now can overcome the world through faith. Through the faith that God gives to us. 
that we might be victorious in the world. It is not a losing proposition to understand that the world is against you. It's not a foregone conclusion that we will certainly lose. We don't have to be the four kings or the five kings in the south assuming that the, the victory has already been had. No, Christ has overcome so that you and I can overcome. There is hope for us. Well, the world had its hold on Lot, and in consequence, he was condemned with the world, with the world of Sodom. He was captured. And this is a discipline of God against, against Lot. This is God's discipline. Lot was said to be righteous. So what do we make of, of Lot being taken into captivity? But God is, God is, is um, disciplining him for his good. A lot hoped for prosperity. He had hoped for possessions, right? That's what he was looking at, all these, these things. And now all of those hopes are dashed, it seems. Well, not all the hopes. Not all hope was lost because God is still God. God is still faithful. And we see how he would use his uncle, Abram, in the next verses, beginning in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So again, not everyone jumped into the pit, clearly. Uh, one here is said to have escaped and came to Abram. Abram called the Hebrew, and that's the first time we see that in, in the text. And he tells him what had happened. Abram was living like 20 miles away from where this had happened by the Oaks of, of Mamre, which we saw already in chapter 13. And we learn here that, that Mamre had two brothers um, who, who were uh, with him. And so there was a, uh, an allyship that happened between Abram and these brothers, there was a, a connection. There was a, a mutual loyalty to one another. And so in response to the news, we see what Abram does next in verse 14. And when Abram heard that his kinsman, that's his relative, had been taken, some of your Bibles might say brother, but it's, it's referring to him as, as his relative, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now back to our map. So they are right here where the conflict happened. And then they start moving this way. And Abram, who is um, wherever, somewhere, he, <laughs> he pursues them as far as Dan. Dan is all the way up here. Uh, Amanda and I actually went to Dan uh, on our trip to Israel. We were there. That's, that's the, like the northernmost part of Israel. In fact, it is, it is near Dan where you can see uh, Lebanon and Syria, right? You can look out and you see both of, of the countries from, from that area of Dan. In fact, the road goes very close to, to both of those borders. So he pursues them all the way there. Now, I show you on the map only to tell you that, that, that it was a distance, that, that he, he pursued them uh, quite a, a ways, um, a ways uh, north, to overtake them, which we'll see in just a moment. But what we do see is here he had trained men from his house. These weren't slaves that, that Pharaoh gave him. These weren't people he collected. These are people that, that were from his, his house, which probably tells us there's a significant time period between when they separated and when this event happens. But Abraham acts. He does. 
He, he jumps into action and we may think, well, did he have to? <laughs> like, did he have to get involved? Like, do I have to get involved in this? Like, maybe you're looking at this thinking, ah, this isn't my problem. <laughs> like, he chose to live in Sodom, not me. Like, he got what was coming to him. Like, this isn't my conflict. Also, God had promised me heir, heirs in a nation, in a family. If I go to battle and I die, what's going to happen to the promise? That's a risky proposition. Maybe I'll just hang here and, and see how it all turns out. Like, why, why should I get involved? Abraham could have concluded that, but he didn't. Instead, Abram took action and he acted in love. As he did in chapter 13 by giving him first dibs, he here acts in love. He acts in brotherly love as Christ has done for us and as we are called to do to others. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 say, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is out of love that Abram goes to Lot when Lot was in trouble. And it is in love when we go to a brother or a sister who is in trouble and seek to help them return. We must be prepared. Abram was prepared. He had 318 trained men to go to war against these four powerful kings. We must be prepared to boldly go, to lovingly fight, spiritually speaking, in the strength that God gives us. We can see here how Abram was was brotherly, but we also can see how he was fatherly to, to Lot. How he showed him compassion. Compassion isn't just, I'm really sorry about that. I feel badly for you. No, compassion is, we are moved. The good Samaritan showed compassion. He was moved to do something. There are things we might feel bad about, but we don't do anything about it. Compassion moves us to do something. Jesus says, In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That word merciful could be compassionate. We could say be compassionate even as your father is compassionate. Did Lot deserve to be rescued? No, he didn't deserve it. Did Lot bring this upon himself by living in Sodom? Yes. Did Lot ask for Abraham to come help him? No. Did Abraham know better? Yes. And so Abraham went. We'll come back to that in a minute. But so Abraham went. He went with his 318 men and they went some 120 miles. So if you think of the distance between approximately the south of the Dead Sea and north, we're talking approximately 120 miles to Dan. And verses 16, 15 to 16 tell us what he does next. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. 
So Abraham goes, he pursues, he attacks, and he was successful. This is a movie. This is a war movie, right? This is, this is the, the legend of Abram, which we'll actually get to next week. The, the success of Abram has, has, a, has a backside to it. But, but likely, these, these forces uh, of these four kings would have been totally caught off guard by this attack. They thought they decimated all their enemies, right? They're, they're on easy street going back home with, with, with all the possessions. And then at night, Abraham strategically attacks. But it wasn't just Abraham's strategy, was it? No, it wasn't just Abraham's great strategy. It wasn't just Abraham's courage. It wasn't his, his, his knowledge or his power. No, Abram's victory was not because of any of those things, but rather because of the Lord. Look at verse 20. We'll look at this next week, but look at verse 20. King, um, King Melchizedek says uh, at the end of verse 19, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who delivered the enemies? God delivered the enemies. Abraham didn't deliver the enemies. He was successful in what he did because God delivered the enemies. Abram entrusted himself to the Lord and the Lord brought about a great victory. That is a good word for us. That the battles that we face, the things that we are called in to do, successful or not, it is up to the Lord the outcomes. We are called to be faithful. Lot was rescued Yet even though he had been through the discipline of the Lord, right, captured in, in a war, and even then, then he, was, he was rescued by the goodness of God, you would think, man, those experiences, that turned somebody around, wouldn't it? That, that, would, that would get you right on, the, on the, the, the straight and narrow. No, it didn't. Lot didn't repent. Lot did not turn from his ways. The next time we see Lot is in chapter 19. And we find that he is sitting in the gate of Sodom. And sitting at the gate of Sodom means that he's a leader in the city. He went right back to it. After all this, he went right back to it. And we may wonder, well, well, well that's a waste. If he's going to go right back, what's the point? After all, Lot Lot wasn't following the Lord to begin with. We may even think in our own life, man, I've I've cared for that person spiritually. I've tried to help them. I've I've bent over backwards for them, and and it's nothing. They've gone through problems. God's rescued them, and nothing. There's no obvious fruit. We might think, well, that didn't work. Why, Why bother? And it's true. It's true that sometimes doing the right thing in the right way does not end with the right response of repentance. That is absolutely true. However, this does not reflect on the rightness of the attempt, only on the hardness of the heart of the wayward one. It is true that God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. That's what Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says. But woe to the one whose heart is hardened to the work of God. The rightness of our obedience to go, to seek to help a brother in sin is not based on the response of that one to whom we are giving compassion. Our actions are unto the Lord, meaning we do the right thing for the right reason, for the good of the other, but ultimately for the glory of God. So let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
God is the God of the results. Leave the results to God. You do what you're called to do. You do what God calls you to do and trust God for the results. Abram's risky rescue here points us to another greater rescue. Whereas Abram conquered four mighty kings to rescue Lot, there's a true and a better Abram who conquered the greatest enemy of all to rescue humanity. You see, it was Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent for us, who left the comfort of his home to redeem the lost, to redeem humanity, the undeserving. And he did it by risking his own life. In fact, by giving his own life that we might have life. The Gospels tell us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue and he came to redeem. This morning, if you know him, then we invite you to give thanks for this one who came to rescue you. That while you were still an enemy of God, Christ died for you. And then let that love, the love of God, the love of Christ for you, cause you to live worthy of his sacrifice. And how do we live worthy of a sacrifice? By obeying him and worshiping him. To no longer live for ourselves, to no longer listen to the ways of the world that tells me that life should revolve around me and I should get whatever I want, but rather step into the kingdom of God and know that God who rules over all has a plan for you and it's better than any other plan and entrust yourself to God. Now, if you do not know Jesus this morning, if you don't know him as your savior, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted him by faith, we invite you to come today and recognize that Jesus has come to save. You might feel undeserving you might feel like you, you've done too much wrong. Look at Lot. Look at the love that Abram had for Lot. It's such a microcosm, but a picture of what the Father has done for us in sending his Son. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. And in response, repent of your sins and trust him by faith alone. Trust him to save you from the penalty of your sin and to keep you from all of eternity and make you his son or his daughter. Come to him. Find the rest that you need, the hope that your soul has longed for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the demonstration of the godlike love that we see in Abram. And thank you that that is a pointer, a foreshadowing of the kind of love that you have for us. Love that would leave the comforts of home to risk, to endure great risk, and in Jesus' case, death, in order to rescue in order to save for all eternity the souls of those who would repent and believe. God, I pray for those who have yet to repent and believe that they would do so today. I pray for those who have, who have that they would rejoice 
in the rescue that they have received and orient their lives now in obedience and worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God.